Pray with me. Gracious Father, we turn our hearts to you. We ask for uh, the gift of your Holy Spirit to give us undivided attention, undivided hearts, that we may turn our gaze now towards the victor in heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Um, I would remember one year at seminary, I think it was the middle year or something, and we had a, a, we had guest preachers all the time in seminary in our Thursday night chapel services, which was high mass, smells and bells and all that, and we almost always had guest preachers, and I remember a, we had a, a guest preacher once, who was an elderly man, a minister in the church, and uh, he got up in the pulpit and uh, he said uh, something like this, I'm going to do tonight what no one is doing anymore, I'm going to talk about sin. And we're all, you know, we're all thinking there like, oh, brother, here we go. You're going to enlighten us like we've never heard about it. And uh, what what proceeded was a pretty graceless and boring dirge of a sermon uh, that felt like it was never going to end. Um, well, the, ne- the next six Sundays were in Lent. And so the, the readings are going to bring up a lot about sin. And so we're going to talk about it. Um, but, but not to, uh, bemoan the, the state of the world or the sin that is a reality that we battle with, but so that we can better walk in the victory that has already been won, uh, on the cross over sin. Amen? So what I want to do, uh, t- today is look at Genesis 3. We actually get two passages where we see the tactics of the enemy. And so what we're going to do is a little bit of a, 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 a study of the, the enemy's tactics so we know who we're up against. And then we're going to talk about the victory that's already been won. And then we're going to talk about some practical ways to continue to walk in that victory. Sound like a plan? Okay, let's go. So let me just say this. Where does this, um, certain, uh, this serpent come from who's in the Garden of Eden and what's up with all of this? Well, um, if you, 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 you missed the... The, the class, because we actually been talking about this in our uh, class on the strange and supernatural world of the Bible. But I'll just say briefly, uh, the, the serpent is simply an appearance of one of heaven's rebels. Okay, who lost his place in the in the presence of God because he out of pride and arrogance and he wanted to be God. And so now he shows up in the form of a, a serpent. And what he wants to do is allure humans, God's human children. He was one of God's heavenly children and he wants to lure God's human children into that same rebellion against God. Okay. That's the gist of it. Okay. And we won't go into specifics about what is it? Was it really a snake or, or whatever? So let's look at the tactics, um, that, that are used as he encounters, um, God's first humans, uh, human family, Adam and Eve. So, uh, verse one says that serpent was more crafty or cunning than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, um, did God actually say, did, did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree in the, in the garden? So, you know, you see what he's, what he does in this passage. Did God really say, certainly you're not going to die, right? Think about the positive. Don't get bogged down in this stuff about what you can't do. Don't worry too much about that. Uh, don't think about all the negative stuff. This is what a, you know, what we might call a slimy salesman does, right? So anybody encountered one of those before, right? They clearly, they're going to do everything they can to make the sale. They do not have your best interest or your bank account's interest in mind. Okay? So they, what they do is they'll, they'll take any angle they can to try to get you to spend money. Right. So they'll they'll try to take your attention away from what the total is going to be when you sign the loan papers or whatever. And they try to remind you, oh, man, these you, you're going to look really good driving this around. 
Just, this just suits you. Yeah, did you see those leather seats, right? They want to draw your attention uh, to anything they can to get you to not be thinking about, oh boy, 10,000, 11,000, then you got to put on the interest. And they want to take your attention away from the consequences. So what they do is they prolong the conversation. They ask questions. They remind you of the peel of the product. They all use all kinds of tactics, right? Well, the enemy, the, 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 the accuser, our enemy, does the same kind of thing. So, so don't miss this, okay? The most successful, and for your note takers, this is for you, the most successful tactic of Satan to incite sin in our lives is the distortion of God's word. Did God actually say? Is it really written that God said that? Right? And it's the same thing he's doing with uh, Jesus in the, te- in the wilderness, right? He's, he's, he's using the word, but he's distorting it for his own purposes. So the enemy, he will do anything to get us to question God's word. He will do anything to get us to accuse God's word, to find it repulsive, to find it out of sync with reality, to see it at odds with our own desires and advancement. Okay, It's one of his main, main strategies, and he is, unfortunately, very successful, very successful with it. You think about our culture's view of of the Bible, of the written uh, word of God, and you can say, the devil's been pretty successful in getting people to to see it as something that it's actually not and to, to reject it, right? So we move on now, verse, verses 2 and 3. The woman says to the serpent, um, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Now, she see, she knows what God said. She's actually reiterating what he said, affirming that she knows exactly what God said. Uh, she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so she knows God's word. Very clear. She makes it clear that she knows God's word. But then did you notice she added something? She add, she added, and he said, you shall not touch it. If you go back and look at the passage, God didn't say that. He said, you shall not eat of it. So why does she add something, right? She adds something that God didn't say. Her heart is already starting to be slowly inclined towards accusing God, Right? making him a little heavy-handed, okay? So you see the enemy's already kind of getting in her thoughts. So and this is another one of his, his tactics. And in each of these verses, we're going to kind of see like a principle or a tactic that he uses um, against us. So here's the one from verses 2 and 3. The enemy arouses accusations in our hearts toward God. It's one of the things we do in the Bible, in the Hebrew. Um, so Satan is not a proper title in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, Satan, and it always has a definite article by it, Ha-Satan in Hebrew, which means the accuser. Okay, so accusation is his game. He accuses us and he gets us to accuse God. He gets us to accuse one another. It's what he does. Okay, so the enemy arouses accusations in our hearts towards God and he does this by influencing our thoughts to make a good and generous God seem harsh and demanding. And it's working on Eve, right? Yeah, he said, you know, he was like, you can't even touch it. Well, he didn't say that, right? So she's already thinking, yeah, maybe God is kind of heavy-handed. Maybe he is too harsh and demanding. Maybe he is unreasonable. Okay. See how that tactic works? Now, think about this. God gave them everything in this whole stinking garden. He said, you can have all of this, right? It's a paradise. You can have everything. I mean, how gracious and generous. He could have said, you guys can have this little plot right here. But he said, you can have everything. So he's actually very generous and gracious and takes delight in giving and being generous. But you see how the accusation starting to work. Oh, he's heavy handed, right? 
So one of the things in the Christian life that we always need to beware of is, is, is offense, right? Because now he's getting her to be offended by God, right? And so one of the, one of the dangers and one of the temptations for Christians is to be people who are constantly always offended by everything or offended by what people say or what, what they do. And, um, I read once, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the quote because I didn't write it down, uh, but the, the, the author said, um, a Christian who is offended is a Christian who has forgotten how much of how much that they've been forgiven of. Right. So the, the so if we're people of the cross, we should be able to walk without offense. This that's the work of the enemy to stir up offenses in our hearts, especially towards our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. So moving on in this passage. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die, right? Satan always clouds our vision to the future consequences of sin. So think about this. You um, let's say married couple. Now I'm not. This is not. I'm not sharing a personal testimony or anything. But let's say you get kind of getting into a little tense moment, a little disagreement about something, and you get a thought, and you're like, I'm going to actually say something and direct it towards his character or her character. Right. And you don't think about the consequences. And so, so you say you are a slob or whatever. Right. You attack their character, but you don't think about the consequences of it. And what happens is the argument spirals out of control. There's guilt, there's shame, there's brokenness that all needs to get healed now. Right. This is what the enemy does. Or it's the same thing. Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just have one night out and kind of let loose. And then you get, you get drunk as a skunk. You, uh, you flirt with someone who's not your spouse. You wake up. You miss your devotional time because you got a hangover. You didn't think through the consequences of the sin, right? That's how the enemy works. So here's, here's a personal story. This is a real personal story. So about a month, about a month ago or so, I felt like the Lord is really calling me and I've shared some of my personal testimony of things that the Lord has been kind of removing from my life rather painfully sometimes. Um, but, but so he can give me, you know, what I need. But one of those things lately has been desserts. And I was really, I mean, I'm telling you, I was like on a binge every week. I was eating like one or two pints of like the Ben and Jerry's. There's this peanut butter non-dairy flavor that I, oh. Oh, I can't even think about it. It's sinful. But I felt like the Lord, what was doing was it was slowing my system down and I was tired in the mornings when I woke up. It was harder to get up early to pray and things because I was eating all this sugar before bed. And so I felt like the Lord said, you, 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 now what you've done, Cameron, is I've helped, you've got rid of alcohol out of your life, but now you're starting to substitute other things into that place. Okay. That's your way to unwind now is with ice cream or junk food or cookies or whatever. And so I felt the Lord kind of saying, let's, let's remove this. You're going to feel a whole lot better and you're going to, you know, it's going to get on track. So I, so I did. And for about almost a month without desserts. And then the other night I just came up with some excuse in my head. I was like, you know what? Lent starts tomorrow. I'm just going to kind of have an indulgent night. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is so stupid. You're going to feel horrible. And I, and I went, you know, as a slippery slope, two nights in a row, watching movies, eating ice cream. Um, now, and I, and then I felt horrible and I felt sluggish in the morning when I woke up. It was harder to pray and, and things like that. Now, I'm not saying eating ice cream is a sin, right? I mean, want everyone to hear me very clearly. Eating ice cream is, is not a sin. But this is an example of how we sometimes engage in behavior that the Lord, we know the Lord's kind of called us away from and we don't consider the consequences of it. So this is, this is the tactic that Satan is using against Eve. He says, you will not certainly die. You know, that's, that certainly is not going to be a consequence if you do this. Now, Going back to Genesis, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay. It's what, what we refer to in Christian theology as the fall, right? It was a disobedience, a blatant disobedience. So here's the tactic in this verse, okay? Enemy tactic number four. Satan makes the forbidden appealing by inciting our deepest desires, okay? He knows how to get our desires stirred up, right? How to incite us towards things that look appealing. So James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote a letter in the New Testament, and he, he put it like this. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay. That's a perfect description of what just happened to Eve. Okay? She began to see her, her, her own desires were incited. She got, uh, she got, she saw the appeal of the wisdom that might make her like God or even better. And she saw that the fruit was appealing and there was this process, right, that led up to that first bite. Bible doesn't tell us of an apple or pomegranate. I guess we won't know until we get to heaven, but, um, I think it was, uh, papaya because I don't like papaya, but, so, the, the reality is that even Christians who do, who do have the new Christ nature in them, which is no small thing, we still have some of that old nature hanging around. Okay. And we have desires in us that don't come from God. We do. Now, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just flip a switch and kind of turn that off and just, you know, that, we, that that's not going to happen until we meet him face to face and we're fully glorified. Until then, we walk in a battle. And so we need to know the tactics of... Our enemy. You see, sin is a, it's a power whose effectiveness works through a process. Right? It works through a sort of a process that draws us deeper and closer to moving away from the presence of God and what's actually life-giving and then to kind of take hold of something that's going to give us a temporary pleasure, but, but leave us deflated and empty after it's, after it's done. Okay? Anybody who's, you know, drank a half of a fifth and woke up the next day didn't say, man, that was a great idea. Right? I feel wonderful. So Jesus talked about this a little bit, and um, it was last week or the week before when he was talking in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually hit on this very thing. And he said, you know, he said, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that he who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery, right? So it's things that brew, they begin to brew in our hearts is where the sin begins, right? So all adultery, all adultery begins with the tickling thrill of gazing at an attractive person who doesn't belong to you, right? Seemingly kind of an innocent flirtation, right? It all starts there. Or or gluttony begins with just, you know, I'm just going to have one of these little hors d'oeuvres or I'm just going to have one bite of this pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? It all starts with something small and subtle. Murder begins with letting a bit of anger fester in the soul. Okay, that's what Jesus' point was too. He talked about uh, murder and anger, remember? And so as we talked about the other day, you got to slay the dragon before it gets too big. Remember the children's storybook we talked about? There's no such thing as dragons. A little boy has a little egg and the dragon hatches and the mom says, oh no, 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 there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon gets bigger and bigger and she keeps denying its existence and then it runs off with the house on its back. So you got to slay the dragon and, when, and, and learn to notice it um, through being aware of the enemy's tactics. 
And I guarantee if you ask the Lord to make you more aware of your personal weaknesses and where he targets you, you'll begin to think, wait a minute, you'll begin to, no, 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 this is, this is one of my weak spots. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go for this. And you'll, you'll go, ah, he almost got me. You doggone devil, you almost got me. It re- really, really is um, in an effective way, just asking the Lord to make you aware when those moments are coming. So now here's the end of the passage. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin always leaves us in shame. Okay? It's a, it's a destructive power. Always leads us in shame. And um, in places in our lives where we become in bondage to sin, there's always sort of a shame in the closet that we're hiding, isn't there? We have to kind of cover it up. We're around other people. It always leaves us in shame. Now, the Lord does not want His people walking around in shame. It's not his desire. It breaks his heart to see us walking around in, in sin and shame. And so he wants to bring victory from that. So this is, this is a pivotal story in the Bible because what happens from here affects all the rest of, of world history, really. Whether you believe this is somewhat mythological or whatever, um, fine. But it begins and it spawns a reality that we can, are witness to today. You turn on the morning news, you saw such and such, you know, killed the, his family and everything. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? People need mental health. Yeah, mental health. Yeah, they do. But there, there's a heart issues in humans. So we see that this has affected all of thing, all of uh, everything, and it affects the rest of us. Now, here's what we're going to do: look at Romans chapter five. You're reading if you have your Bible or Romans chapter five. If you have your uh, bulletin, just uh, look there. So here's how Paul Paul put it: this whole e, uh, Garden of Eden thing. Here's what he says happened. Right there at the beginning, he says. Um, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. Sin came in through one person and it spread and infected everyone. Now, the, the ultimate effect of that is death, right? That we, we don't have eternal life in our natural state anymore, which Adam and Eve had, but God had to withdraw his presence from them. Now, we're in need of some good news, aren't we? It's a pretty dismal story and of, of the effects of which we can see in our everyday lives. The effects of which we can see, let's be honest, in our own hearts. Okay. So we need some good news. Now, I want you to just look down a little bit in Romans chapter 15. I know you don't have verse numbers. I think we're going to start putting them in there for you to help follow along a little bit better. But listen to what Paul goes on to say, okay? And then I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what, what I believe he means by this. So lower, down in verse 17, he says... Um, for if because of one man's trespass or, or transgression or sin, death reigned through that one man, he's talking about Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, everybody say abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Can you say alleluia? No, you can't. It's Lent. But you can think it. But you can think it. Here's what he's saying. I was talking to, to, to someone the other day who was just finished reading through all of Romans 5 and she said, my gosh, this is hard to wrap your mind around. I said, yeah, Romans is somewhat of a theological exposition of the whole gospel and it is very thick in parts. But let me kind of just give a, give a, uh, give my interpretation or give what I believe is what's happening here. So Paul is, um, throughout this passage showing us that, um, by birth, Adam, Adam in Hebrew means humanity. He's the representative of humanity. So by birth, 
Adam is our representative or what the theologians call our federal head. Okay, And so hence we stand under Adam lost in sin, under the condemnation of sin and death by, by birth, by nature. Okay, But what Paul is saying, if the one trespass affected all of humanity with death, how much more will the free gift of grace abound to many through the one man, Jesus Christ? So what he's saying is that when someone looks to Jesus and says, I want out of the sin and death, and I want my sins forgiven, and I want to follow him and have life, you move out from Adam being your representative, your federal head, and you move into the family of Jesus. And he is now your representative and your federal head. And so his righteousness, which was a free gift, is now you have been wrapped in it. The chasuble is a good image of that, right? He wraps you in a robe of his righteousness. And now he's your representative. And, and the Bible tells us that he stands as a mediator on our behalf at the right hand of God. For even when we do mess up, he mediates and advocates for us. And God looks at us and has made us his holy and blameless children. That's the gospel. That was what was accomplished on Calvary for us. And so it's going to be hard for us not to say the A word. Uh, because when, when the gospel gets proclaimed, it's hard not to say that, that word that's forbidden until Easter. But we'll just have to say, yeehaw, or something like that instead. But his grace has abounded and flowed to us from the cross so that Adam is no longer our representative, Jesus is. That's good news. So now we're forgiven of our sin, the sin that infected us, that power, and we're released from its power. And Paul says that we reign in life. So, so turn to your neighbor and say, you reign in life. If you're in Christ, you reign in life. So here's what I want to talk about. Just coming to the end here, practically, how do we reign in life, um, knowing the enemy's tactics and then walking in the victory that's already been won per Romans chapter 5, that Jesus has already won the victory on the cross. Remember, he disarmed the principalities and powers when he died on the cross. He robbed every demonic rebel and Satan of all their power, ultimately, and we're just kind of finishing out the battle until he returns. Okay, So how do we walk in victory practically? It's important um, to know the tactics of the enemy and what his goal is, is to pull you away from the presence of the Lord. So you no longer thriving, enjoying God's presence and his blessing. That's what he wants, right? And so fellowship with the Lord is his goal to kind of destroy that in every human life. So it's important to know his tactic enemies, not just his general methods, but how he targets your and my weaknesses particularly, because we all have particular weaknesses. I won't read you my list of mine. So what is it for you? Does he know how to convince you that God doesn't love you or that you're not good enough or that you're not doing enough and God's not going to be happy with you until you do more? That's a, that's a, that's a big one for some people. The enemy feeds lies about their identity in Christ. You need to work to make God happy. When in fact, the Bible says God has delighted in you because of what Christ has done. And from that flows a life of of service and good works. Or does he know your soft spot for overeating, gluttony or alcohol or, uh, or whatever, pornography? Does he know your soft spot or your weaknesses? He will target them. Does he know how to get you to stay up late at night so you don't rise early for prayer and worship? These, these are things I, th- I think the enemy can be behind some of that. 
I know it, it is for me. So we need to be aware of his tactics and walk out our victory in union with Jesus. Amen? We, we can say amen. That's not a forbidden A word during Lent. Okay, so where do we go from here? Uh, Note takers, get ready. I'm going to give you a, a, just a th- three points here. There's, maybe there's four, but we'll try to be quick. Number one is this. Learn to hear the voice of God through the word of God. Learn to hear the voice of God through the word of God. Because while the enemy will work to influence our thoughts, the good news is that our Heavenly Father desires to speak very clearly to us. And he will, and he wants to, and there's ways to position ourselves to be able to hear more from him. And the more we hear from him, we're going to be able to identify the other voice. So, um, the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, who he gives, you know, he's a person of the Trinity, he gives him, he dwells in us, lives in us. He'll always speak in consistency with the written word. Now, he may say things to us that are not in here, right? He may talk to you about the next job that you need to take or a mission trip that you need to take or the person you need to marry. That's not in here. But what he says will never contradict what is in the written word because this is his book. He authored it. He didn't change his mind. So it'll always be in consistency with his written word. Jesus um, told his disciples, he was talking about the Holy Spirit, and he said, he will lead you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit of God does the opposite of what Satan does, right? Who's the deceiver. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And the good news is, is that we have access to him so that we don't have to fall for the lies and the deception. So if we're living in a life yielded to him and in his presence, it's going to be a whole lot harder for the enemy to get to us with his lies. And in fact, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will lead you all to the truth. And then remember, Jesus said, I am the truth. So the Holy Spirit will always lead us to the presence of Jesus. That's what he does. He kind of steps out of the way and he, what he does is he puts Jesus out there for us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit will also bring to mind things Jesus has already said. So in John chapter 14, Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance things Jesus has already said. In moments of temptation, persecution, whatever it is. So thus, the more we know about Jesus from the Bible, the more prepared we are to hear God's voice through the Holy Spirit. See how that works? Because he'll never contradict this and he'll speak through this. So the more we know about Jesus from the Bible, the more we'll be prepared. A lot of Christians will say, I wish I could hear God's voice better. Maybe you've said that. I've said that. I wish I could hear God's voice better, but I don't. Well, God, I believe, is waiting for, for us to learn to hear his voice in his written word first. That's foundational because then we get uh, we get familiar with what his voice sounds like and the kind of things that he says and what his fatherly heart contains and what he what he desires. That will actually help us hear his voice, the voice of his spirit in prayer a whole lot better if we get to know how to hear him through his written word. So I actually advise people who are asking about prayer techniques and meditating and things like that. I actually advise people not to make a practice of emptying their minds to try to then then focus on the Lord um, and hear from God. Until, until they're very familiar with his word. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to go out there unaware and just kind of open my mind and just hope that God speaks to me. Because as we see in scripture, there's other voices that want to speak to us and influence us, right? So I always tell people, get to know the word of God. Do a practice, like a long church practice in the church for centuries called Lectio Divina. And it means a divine reading. And you just take a simple passage and you focus in on something small, a word or a phrase, and you kind of repeat it out loud a few times slowly. And you just ruminate on it like a 
like a cow chewing cud slowly. That's ruminating. Kind of ruminating on it and let it seep into your soul. And ask the Lord to speak to you through it. So an example would be you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount and you read, you read Jesus. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Lord, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Man, sometimes I'm not. I'm kind of prideful. Arrogant. What does it mean to be poor in spirit, right? And just kind of ruminating on that. God's voice will speak to you uh, through practices like that. I also have heard that there's some pretty good uh, classes around here that teach on the Bible, but you, those are always, I don't know, someone said that <clears throat> to me, but th- that's another path for learning more about how to hear God's voice. Number two is this. Stay close to Jesus. It's worth saying this in every sermon, and I probably will. Stay close to Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4 says this about gazing at the one uh, who has won our hearts over and who has won the victory on our behalf. Uh, Paul says this. I didn't set my ribbons very well today. Forgive me. Now we're ready. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, that is, through salvation, through faith and baptism, you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See what he's saying? Keep your focus on him. Gaze at him. That's the Christian life, gazing at him. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, right? Your old self has died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So our life is hidden with Christ in God, even when you mess up. And you will. And I will. But your life is hidden with Christ in God by the power of his saving blood. Amen? <clears throat> I was reading the other day and um, just, sometimes you just read a simple line out of a book and it just resonates with you. And I wanted to read this to you. It's from a book by Andrew Murray who was an old South African uh, minister and missionary. Uh, he said this. This is about the promise of the presence of the Lord. He said, If we can get up in the morning, go through the day, and meet every difficulty with the secret consciousness that the Lord Jesus is with us, then we are prepared for anything and our hearts are kept in perfect rest and joy. There's just a sweet simplicity to that. Number three is this. Walk in conscious awareness that the battle has been won. This is really important because the enemy will try to deceive us and get us thinking that he's not been defeated, that you're you're defeated, that you aren't actually a, a victor in Christ. So after this whole debacle in the Garden of Eden, God speaks, um, he's, he brings curses upon humanity, but also the serpent. And what he says to the serpent is this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, you're going to, you're going to give him a little wound, but he's going to crush your head. Okay, this is what um, the church fathers called the proto-evangelion, the pre-gospel. Because it proclaims what's going to happen to the serpent. That there's going to be one that comes from the offspring of Eve, the mother of humanity, who's going to crush his head victoriously. You know where that happened? Where did it happen? On the cross. Amen. On the cross. So that was a kind of prophecy about the cross right there in Genesis 3.15. Satan bruised Jesus' heel by getting him crucified. But what he didn't realize was that his own head was getting crushed because he was dying for our sin to release us from the power of, of sin and was raised from the dead by the power of God. 
in that, when that happened, the serpent was dealt the death blow, final death blow. And the power of sin and death were defeated. And John tells us, the beloved disciple, who wrote a letter in the, letters in the New Testament, he said, he who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That is the enemy. So you have power and authority in the, 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 the Lord of heaven and earth residing in you, and you are a victor. So turn to your neighbor and say, we won. We won. All right. You see, our enemy's goal, it's always, it's always really, just coming back to this fundamental idea, it's, it's just to take our eyes off Jesus. It's to take our eyes off Jesus. So let's stand as victors. And if our worship team would get ready to uh, lead us in worship. <clears throat> let's just stand. I want to pray for, for everyone. And then we'll just go into a time of standing in that victory and, and worshiping the one who's calling our gaze up to him right now in this, in this sanctuary. So, Father in heaven, uh, we call upon you as our Father, confident that you have won for us the victory in Christ. And, Lord, for, for anyone who's not confident of that, that they've, that they've given their allegiance to Jesus in this room today, I just pray that you'd minister to their hearts and just uh, open up the doors of heaven and invite them to do so. I pray, Lord, that right now as we enter into a time of worship that... Um, every every fear, every distraction, anything that would hold us back um, from coming into your presence, even guilt and shame, Lord. I just pray right now against any guilt and shame in this room. And I just plead the blood of Jesus over, over every sin, every hindrance, every distraction, so that we can do what you want us to do right now, which is to begin to enter deeply into your presence and to enthrone you, Jesus, upon our praises. So we give you this time. We ask that you'd minister to each of us, Lord, as we seek to minister to you and bless your name. Amen.